know, our vision for the company from the get-go when we, when we pioneered this space was, you know, this is a new kind of biopharma company, biopharma 2.0, if you will, where instead of having an antibody platform, we have a data platform. And our goal and vision had always been to develop our own pipeline. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. As a child in Mumbai, Ginny Despande told her parents that by the time she was 40, she wanted a car, a house, and her own company. Check, check, and check. Today, we'll ask the accomplished Numedi CEO what she's going to do for an encore. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shewitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, one of the things that so impressed me about our guest today is her absolutely fearless approach to new experiences, something that I'm sure we'll get to. But she seems to look at each new role, including roles I would I, I, that would seem to be really intimidating, as really an opportunity, as a, authentically as an opportunity, as a chance to acquire new skills and capabilities. Is this a quality that you deliberately look for in the entrepreneurs you fund? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I'm not sure if it's a quality you look for or that happens to exist, you know, that they, you know, it's a necessary condition as opposed to Intrinsically a, selected Yeah, for. exactly. Because I think, you know, if you meet somebody who's an entrepreneur and they're drive, driven by fear or, you know, anxiety about something they might do, that that is a bad problem. Well, but it's balanced, right, with mm-hmm. sort of the, uh, you know, the whole uh, Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. Yeah, well, I do think there's something to balance, right? I think I think being fearless is important, but it also has to be balanced by pragmatism. Right, you know? right. So it's an interesting problem in, uh, in entrepreneurship. All right, well, we will hear how she gets it right. So welcome to the program, Ginny, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure to join you both today. All righty. So I know you grew up in Mumbai, the daughter of a commercial airline pilot, and you're the oldest of two kids. You told me that you went into sports um, as w- and you were interested in sports as well as school from a young age, and that you were often just one of a handful of girls to join activities such as dodgeball. Can you talk about those experiences? You can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, it was uh, sort of unusual for uh, girls to play a sport with boys, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I enjoyed uh, playing sports and thought, why can't I join in? And the boys said, sure you can. We're not going to change the rules because you're a girl. You're going to have to compete, you know, on the same terms that, that we're competing in. I said, bring it on and, and, and dove right in. Um, and it was a great, you know, learning experience uh, that's actually set me up well for uh, what I'm doing now. I mean, entrepreneurship and, and being uh, one of few women in, in this space. I think it's uh, exciting that the training that I've, I've acquired there has come in handy now. The ability to hit somebody hard where it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> for the, for the, I hated uh, the trajectory object. I, I do that more verbally now. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're too kind. Um, but um, I, man, I hated dodgeball. Just as an aside, <laughs> I, I played and probably wish I didn't have to. It's a great movie, though. It's a I, great movie. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's it's still post traumatic stress for me. Um, so you credit your dad for being unusually supportive. Uh, in what way, and how how did you describe it to me as somewhat as you thought it was a little bit unusual degree of how he was supportive? Uh, can you help us understand that. Yeah. So you know, he he wanted a daughter back in the day when it was sort of uh, want a boy. He he wanted a daughter, and he's always treated me um, like 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 a son. In, in that you know he um, uh, you know ensured that I would be able to 
uh, achieve whatever I wanted to achieve. He didn't uh, limit my thinking in any way. In fact, uh, encouraged me to take on risk um, and was very supportive of it. And I think that's very important um, for girls growing up. I know, David, you, you certainly uh, share the sentiment that, uh, you know, hearing your dad uh, support your, your ambitions and say you can achieve it, I think is uh, emotionally very rewarding for, for girls to have. So you went to college and then a competitive master's program in molecular biology in India, and then you turned down a full scholarship to do your PhD in the United States in Purdue. Is That's in Indiana, right, Purdue? That's correct. What Such was that trans- I mean, going going from India to Indiana, um, yes. it's only a couple letters, but it's a big a big change. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? It, it, was, it was interesting. You know, and, and, and people, when I, when, I, when I got to Purdue, said, you know, you're going to college of shock. And I said, yes, of the reverse kind. Um, you know, I went from a place like Mumbai, which is uh, considered very uh, similar to New York, uh, you know, happening place, lots of things going on, people active and about, um, to a very small, sleepy little town like uh, West Lafayette. Um, so it was a big change. And uh, as a vegetarian, I went from, you know, uh, a place like India to uh, corn and beef country. <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a shock. But, you know, I really enjoyed my time at Purdue, I think, um, got uh, exposed to a number of different people from different countries, different cultures. Uh, these are still friends to date. They're uh, people from Turkey and people from Peru, uh, people from Pakistan who grew up in, in the UK. Um, and, and so the cultural experiences as well as the academic experiences were all um, fantastic and, and, and really uh, broadened both my perspective on life as well as on science. That's fantastic. You know, I, I really think one of the great things about science, and certainly I remember from my graduate school, is um, how international it was and is, um, and all of the, diff- you know, and what you learn, um, you know, with, with it really almost is, really is sort of a melting pot of so many different people with so many different backgrounds and experiences. Now, one of the things I thought that was pretty interesting is you said that you figured out pretty quickly during um, graduate school that you didn't want to be an, an academic. You said you were really interested in translation, and you weren't sure that sort of thinking was a great fit for a lot of what you were exposed to in academ- academia. Could you go into that a little bit? So when I was, you know, finishing up my PhD, my advisor was actually going through the tenure process uh, in academia, and um, it was a very interesting time to be uh, in academia. This was when the NIH budgets were being cut. There was a lot of uncertainty on what would happen uh, with funding, and just sort of observing the tenure process and what that entailed. Um, was not a lot of fun, and more importantly, actually, when I was in doing my, my graduate work, got exposed to a program that the NSF ran at the time, which exposed, exposed engineers and scientists uh, to what was a mini-MBA, um, essentially all the courses that MBA students would take but sort of scrunched down into a, uh, an eight-week or 16-week program. And so you got exposed to a number of different um, concepts and ideas, uh, in the business world, and uh, we solved cases uh, with case studies. So we solved problems in, in team settings and really enjoyed um, solving problems in a group setting, um, you know, as opposed to being an academic where, for the most part, you solve problems on your own at the bench. Uh, and that's when I realized, uh, you know, early on that I wanted to uh, really focus on taking science and then applying it rather than just science for the sake of science, which is great. I mean, we do need people who are uh, purists in, in, in that sense, but uh, looking at how it can be applied, what are the steps taken to take this, some interesting scientific concepts 
And then how do you make them tangible for patients? Um, that sort of aspect of uh, applying science, the translational aspects of science was, uh, was interesting and something that, you know, it was, like, I caught that bug when I was doing that little mini MBA program. Wow. And then how, how did your colleagues respond when you, as you became increasingly interested in translation, um, how did the folks at, at, not necessarily at Purdue, but, you know, the, the folks in that world respond? It's a loaded question because I know we discussed it. Um, <laughs> what was, you know, I, I, I think it's important for sort of people with who, who haven't necessarily been in the environment to understand what it's like when you decide you want to focus on the translation. How, Go into that dirty business Well, stuff. that's the thing. It's sort of, it is yeah. exactly, Lisa. I had the same experience in my graduate program. When I wanted to work in business, I got, you know, uh, shunned. I, I, it's <laughs> a dirty word. And I sort of thought, wow, this is, this is, this is um, scary. Because if we as scientists cannot help advance the science forward in a different direction rather than just writing papers or giving talks, um, how are these benefits going to reach patients? Because as scientists, you know the science better than anybody else does, and how do you sort of turn that into something tangible? It, it was found upon, and in fact, uh, you know, I was, I was discouraged from applying for that NSF program. Fortunately, I had a co-advisor um, who, who, who happened to be a woman and said, no, absolutely not. Jenny's got to do this because this will be good for her, even if she doesn't go off into business being exposed to the thinking of this world will be important. And she was supportive of it. And, and uh, actually, you know, that was uh, one, one area where I, I learned, you know, along the way that having your own little um, uh, group of advisors to champion your career becomes really, really important and, and, and one that I continue to, uh, you know, focus on uh, to this day. Wow. So th that sounds, um, it, continuing with that theme, I know that you then did a short postdoc at MGH, but then really decided to jump into business with both feet, mediated by a very interesting program that you found at Children's Hospital in their tech transfer office. Can you go into that a little bit? So when I was finishing up my postdoc, uh, you know, at, at Mass General Hospital, the cancer center, um, I, I realized that I really wanted to get into the business world, but having been a bench scientist, I sort of lacked the business skills. Industry require you to have at least some level of, of business exposure experience before you can jump in. And so how do I go from where I am today to where I want to get to? Um, and came across this very interesting program that Children's Hospital Boston had at the time. They had a formal internship program uh, run by the tech transfer office, uh, uh, a person by the name of Don Lombardi, who headed up the office, started He's an educator by training and thought, you know, we should encourage more people to get into this space. And so he started this program. It was fantastic. You got, it, you got partnered with people who had decades of industry experience and business development roles, uh, people who, uh, you know, worked with IP attorneys, helped negotiate contracts. So I got, I got partnered with some very senior-level people. Uh, and learned the ropes very quickly of how you take very cutting-edge scientific concepts and identify commercial potential there. Um, so I got to work with uh, IP attorneys. I actually drafted some contracts. I worked with general counsel, who was also um, phenomenal, Patrick Taylor, and he, he taught me how to write contracts for, um, for things that, you know, templates didn't exist. I had to create new templates. So uh, learning about the bits and pieces that go into actually writing a contract and understanding subtleties in contract language and, and, and how even a single word change can have a completely different implication was, was great training. And, you know, you've got to train in a safe environment, which I have to say does not happen in industry 
uh, much anymore. But you got to train with people, and if you if you made a mistake, you had somebody there to sort of uh, have your back and help you sort of figure how to navigate that and, and do it correctly the next time around. So it was, it was a fabulous program. What was the most interesting thing you licensed that turned into something great? Something... Tell us about a translational experience in that job that actually went well. So two things. One, I inherited the portfolio for uh, what was the thalidomide patent portfolio at Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, and thalidomide had a very interesting trajectory. It was, um, as you know, was discovered uh, to have anti-angiogenic properties and, and, and uh, went on to eventually get licensed to Celsius and has gone on to make billions of dollars for them. But it was initially licensed to a company called Antramed, uh, and Antramed turned around and licensed it to Celgene. So that was a fun experience sort of understanding how, um, you know, licensees and licensors were dealing with things, and that was a, a, a very interesting experience. And the other um, fun transactional experience I had was working with Anthony Atala, uh, who's done a lot of stem cell uh, technologies, and he had uh, created three different startups, and so I got to work on on those and understand, you know, what are the pieces that go into a business plan? What are investors looking for? And um, what were the issues that companies cared about? And, and how do you deal with the academic constraints around it? And uh, Anthony Atala you know, is, is an incredible individual and, and scientist, and uh, it was fun to work with him as well. It's so interesting. You know, I'm really, I've just been even just struck lately. I was thinking about this earlier this week, actually, of um, how many people, a scientist really... Uh, get their way into some business or business development stuff through experiences, through tech transfer. It's almost this underappreciated mechanism uh, to catalyze sort of the, uh, the this transition from being sort of a scientist to being, you know, at least the, the, rudiment, you know, the rudiments you need to sort of be a, be a business person or an, entre- or an entrepreneur. So um, here you are at Children's. You're having this great experience. You rapidly advance from being an intern to a licensing manager to a director of a new innovation initiative, and then you up and move to California. Um, certainly better weather, um, but can you tell us about, uh, about about what that experience was like? Yes. Yeah, so the move to California was actually because uh, my husband, the cool Butte, got recruited to Stanford. So uh, it, it, you know people were were trying to convince me to stay back in Boston. Uh, uh, trying to convince us to have sort of a bicoastal arrangement, which wasn't going to be feasible. Uh, so we moved out here, and then, um, you know, I got recruited to Affymetrics. Uh, Sue Siegel, who, you know, Lisa knows extremely well, um, actually uh, had, 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 uh, had been uh, involved with, um, you know, uh, driving sort of the, the, the progress at Affymetrics, and I don't know how tools work, and so I connected with her, and... Uh, and she said, there's, there's opportunities at Affymetrics. Would you be interested in considering them? And um, went off to explore a business development role there. And actually, in the middle of my interview process, uh, the, the job got eliminated. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because it was like two days of interviews. You finish for the first day, first day of interviews, and then the second day, you, you, you know, you, the person you're meeting with comes in and says, sorry, the position wasn't eliminated. But I have this other interesting role. Would you be interested in throwing your hat in the ring for it? I thought... Yeah, you know, it was, it was funny. And Affymetrics was a great... Um, <laughs> That's so crazy. Uh, so I ended up going there for, for, to do strategic marketing, which is a brand new role, um, something that hadn't been done before. I mean, imagine, you know, telling, bringing that kind of a role into Apple, to sort of bring the voice of the customer back into a company that basically created the market. Um, so very, very challenging role, but uh, an interesting one because it touched many different groups within Affymetrics. Um, so certainly corporate development, marketing, sales, uh, product development, uh, the scientific uh, side of things, 
Um, so got to see sort of the, uh, you know, what I refer to as the underbelly of the beast. Uh, uh, you got to see the challenges that they were dealing with and future directions and how do you sort of stay focused on the long-term vision of where the company needs to go while helping them solve some very immediate short-term um, problems and issues that they were dealing with. So uh, it, was, it was a great training ground there as well to sort of uh, engage with people. And, you know, some of the ex-AFI alumni have now gone on to start their own company. So uh, a fun group of people, lots of Taipei personalities, uh, very entrepreneurial. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun. Um, uh, you know, so you got that got a global perspective. There's a lot of people who'd say that the role of strategic marketing is the polar opposite role of science, you know, <laughs> in an academic world. That is completely opposite and perhaps a sign of the devil. Um, you know, you ought to take a totally different look at things, right? Is instead of saying, you know, what is possible from a scientific standpoint, you're saying, here's what I've got. How do I sell it? How do I make it um, interesting to people? How do I make it palatable to the, to the customers? What was the biggest difference from those two roles, you know, in those two roles from your standpoint? How did you feel about being on the marketing side? So, you know, in terms of the strategic marketing role at Affymetrics, it was really focused on looking at products that uh, their customers would want in the future. And given that I was dealing with the academic business unit, which was the largest revenue generator for Affymetrics, their customers were primarily scientists. Um, and so for me, it wasn't as big of, of a hurdle um, to get into that sort of a role because I was dealing with, uh, with scientists who were using their products and trying to understand, you know, what would they want in the future, what were the bottlenecks in their workflows that they were dealing with with the current products and sort of looking for to be bundled together and provided to them uh, to enable them to actually uh, make more use or better use of, of some of the products that Affymetrics was, was developing. So uh, it wasn't as much of a stretch for me to go from, you know, the right. scientific role that I had before to, to strategic marketing. Now, as you were there, you mentioned that while they were helping to generate data, obviously, and generating a bunch of it, they weren't really thinking about um, how to analyze it, um, uh, something that, uh, that, that you had been really intrigued by. H- how did this lead to uh, the founding of uh, Numedi, uh, the current the company that uh, you both uh, co-founded and that you are the CEO of? So when I was there, you know, I, I, I would often see scientists who would uh, generate data using the asymmetric arrays, but were focused on a small subset of what the data could provide. And, and the consistent, consistent theme I kept seeing was, you know, the need for better analytics tools, the biggest bottleneck was in what do I do with the data that's coming out of these arrays? How do I analyze it? How do I make sense of it? Um, and so it became clear to me very early on that there was enormous amounts of data that was being generated um, that, that scientists were capturing but not really utilizing. So, for instance, someone who was interested in type 2 diabetes might have focused on the insulin receptor signaling cascade because that's all they wanted to look at or knew how to look at. And so they focus on that, but there was a lot of data being collected at the whole transcriptome level um, that they weren't really utilizing or, or analyzing. And the concept of going across disease areas was even more um, remote for them because, you know, people who were trained in one discipline rarely looked, you know, across disciplines. Um, so the, um, I could see the potential of the data that was being generated, and fortunately, um, you know, the, there was a mandate by NIH that any... Um, Grant funding that was used to generate this data meant that the data had now to get put out into a public repository, and then um, the NCBI created the, the geo repository, and there's a similar repository called Array Express, and the 
in the UK. And so a lot of this data that's being collected uh, is required, especially for publications now, for it to be in, the, in these public repositories in order for anyone to publish their papers. So we're very fortunate that um, all the data that's being collected can now actually be harnessed. So when you're, when you're thinking about Numedi originally into now, um, how has that evolved? Did you start by selling Insight or, or thinking about you know, it as a platform and now you're thinking about it as a, as a generation of product you know, platform for yourself? I think so many of these companies had to wrestle with that you know, sort of decision. Am I a data company or am I a drug company? <laughs> That's a great one. But, you know, uh, for Numedi, and I can very candidly say this, is, you know, our vision for the company from the get-go when we, when we pioneered this space was, you know, this is a new kind of biopharma company, biopharma 2.0, if you will, where instead of having an antibody platform, we have a data platform. And our goal and vision had always been to develop our own pipeline. Um, so we started out by working with partners because of most new technology companies, uh, whether they be data, you know, data types of technology or whether they're antibodies or other types of technology, partners to validate their technology. And so we worked with partners to help them with their discovery efforts, but then, you know, are, I've been focused on sort of developing our own pipeline and are now in the process of transitioning to developing our own pipeline uh, with a focus on a few therapeutic areas. So we'll continue to work with partners, but at the end of the day, you know, we want to have our own pipeline because that's where we believe, A, we can control um, the pace at which things get done, and B, actually capture some of the value that, that we're creating. How far are you along, uh, are you sort of down that process of, of evolving from sort of an analytics company to a therapeutics company? So we've started to develop our own pipeline. We just structured a partnership uh, last year with a group called Three Lakes Partners. This is a family office that has a, a strong interest in, and is committed to solving the problem of uh, uh, an orphan condition called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a disease of the lung. Where, yeah, it's a terrible condition. Uh, lungs start to, it's, a, it's a horrible condition, and, and, and it's one where the lungs start to solidify, and so it becomes really hard for these patients to breathe. Uh, and we don't know what causes it. Um, and so this is a really good fit for our technology where you have multiple different pathways and, and cascades coming into play and you really need to tease apart disease biology using AI and big data. Um, and we are committed to uh, developing a, a, a set of products in that space. And so we've started to um, uh, you know, identify candidates and we're in the midst of testing them. So I mean, it seems like what's interesting, I guess... That program and, is, is up and running. I mean, it seems to me what's one of the advantages of actually being a therapeutics company versus um, uh, um, sort of an analytics or insight company is if, if you know, basically at the end of the day, you're judged by the quality of the compounds that you make. So if you're, if you're an analytics company, people might say, well, I don't like how you're analyzing it. I don't think it's going to work. I, this doesn't make sense to me. We're doing it better ourselves. Whereas here, you're basically sounds, you know, at the end of the day, you're saying here's a compound for something. I guess what I imagine the challenge is, is wh what's differentiated and what do you have proprietary data sets? Do you look at them in a proprietary way? What will enable you to come up with compounds that others won't come up with? So one advantage we have is that we're not restricted to data from any one uh, institution, right? We take data from the from uh, you know multiple different groups that's out in the public domain. But we're also uh, structuring partnerships to access proprietary data in specific therapeutic areas that are of interest to us, uh, and taking the best of all worlds. So we look at what's in the literature, we look at all the omics data that's in the public domain, and we're also accessing omics data from proprietary sources. And so this combination of, of 
forces that feed into our discovery efforts enables us to be pretty comprehensive in terms of what we do. But at the end of the day, if you think as a biopharma company and you want your drug to succeed, very important to understand what's being developed now, what are the therapies that are already approved, and how do you differentiate whatever you're coming up with against those standard of care drugs. Because you have to, if you, if you want your drug to get you know, reimbursed, you obviously have to think about that, that aspect of things. So that thinking goes in at the front end, and that's how we ensure that you know, our programs are going to be differentiated and our products are going to be differentiated. Because at the end of the day, if you have a Me Too drug, getting paid for it is, is really challenging. Quite frankly, you know, if you think about it from the patient's perspective, they don't need a Me Too drug. They need something that's better. Um, so that, that, that feeds into our thinking early, early on. So I'm curious, you know, in this new world of platform, data platforms to, to discover drugs, what happens if the drug that comes out first fails? I mean, in the, in the normal pharma world, lots of the drugs, you know, that, that come to trial fail. It's an expected outcome. Um, do you think it will be treated differently if your first drug, God forbid, you know, should fail in, in trial? Would that mean that the whole platform doesn't work or would you just keep trying? And how would that be received by the industry? Yeah, that, that's a great question and, and one that I think most uh, companies struggle with. And, you know, our, our view on this is uh, even if, you know, 100% and actually, you know, as a scientist, I would, I would argue that you have to expect some level of failure. The point here is that the cost to getting it eat out should be low enough that it enables you to take multiple shots on goal. And that's what we're focused on. If you're going to fail, fail early. Um, so that you haven't spent the millions of dollars and aren't sort of chasing things and pushing things forward with where the delta is so small that you really can't see a difference and you need these massive studies to be able to show any statistical difference in, in patient populations. But will the bar will the bar be higher for you? Will the proof the bar of proof be higher for you? You know, it, I I don't I don't think it'd be any different than any other biotech company coming up with a product. I think you know at the end of the day, if you if you look at what's coming out of the platform, it is drug candidates. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're comparing drug candidate to drug candidate, that's sort of where we will be evaluated. How we got to the drug almost is irrelevant. Well, I guess what I was saying is I can imagine that the degree to which it's evaluated, it will be evaluated like in other drug candidates, and the degree of rigor likely depends on the area. There are some areas where, and some, you know, some companies that seem to do it very rigorously, other areas where things get frothy or people get desperate, they sort of seem to have a lower bar and they advance things that, uh, that shouldn't be advanced. What you were saying also reminds me of this recent wonderful piece by Anish Koka uh, in the healthcare blog about the history of organ transplantation, where he was talking about Starzl and all his work and how it was it not just did the first one fail but it was fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and how everyone the ethicists and everyone was like this has to stop this is terrible we can't do this um, and but he believed in it and he was persistent and um, but you know, but but Nish writes it up in a nice way saying how you both need the critics because most things don't work but you also need the the people the champions because he now you know now it's standard of care for some things I am. Um, I know we only have a minute left, but I wanted to, to take a little bit of a different direction. <clears throat> I wanted to take a little bit of a different direction and just uh, emphasize uh, or really give you a chance to talk about one area that I know is so important and that you've been so passionate about, and that's the role of mentorship both in your own career and that of others. And I would say in particular, you've talked you know, very poignantly, I guess, what, of uh, what could be described as almost a gender-specific leadership style. Could you explain what you mean by this and, and how you sort of um, uh, uh, 
have, have approached this from the perspective of being a mentor yourself? You're only giving me a minute to respond, David. <laughs> I would not think of doing that. Take as much time as you need. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> mentorship, you know, I think is absolutely critical. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past. I think there's this perception that, you know, if you have a very aggressive alpha male personality, that somehow that is um, indicative of someone being successful. And I think that's this perception that we need to get away from. Um, women leaders, you know, tend not to be in your face uh, aggressive and, and um, uh, assertive in that manner. I think there is a quiet strength that some women can bring to the table and have uh, and women can tend to have a more collaborative leadership style, which can actually be extremely rewarding when you're dealing with um, complex challenges and complex biology to start with and understanding sort of what's the best for a given project or situation and, and, and leaving ego out of it. Um, and I think that's something that women can bring to the table. It's hugely underappreciated uh, in our industry. And, and, and this, you know, uh, cookie-cutter persona of what, what makes a great CEO uh, fundamentally needs to change. Um, you know, it's, it's one that, that uh, I'm a big proponent of. I've seen uh, some amazing, incredible leaders who happen to be introverts. They're not out there in your face and, you know, pounding the table, going, by, you know, being the loudest voice in the room. Um, but they know how to bring people together and move them forward in, 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 a, in a specific direction. I think that's really important for us to recognize and understand. And diversity, I think, is extremely critical. Um, you know, just different viewpoints. And, and, and at my company, I certainly welcome that. My, my team is free to um, disagree with me, and they can disagree with me very passionately. Um, you know, we're all scientists, and I encourage a difference of opinion because I'd rather learn from, you know, my own team and our, my own advisors that something isn't quite right if it isn't right rather than go out there and, 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 and have the world say it. I, I would rather um, have that discussion internally and fix it uh, rather than sort of try to put out something that isn't, uh, quite right. And it, it's a different style, I think, altogether, and one that most investors, um, you know, don't recognize. Um, they, they look for a certain phenotype, and, and that's not always right. In fact, you know, there's a funny story. I actually got turned down for an investment because I wasn't um, aggressive enough, and I thought, that is so bizarre because I'm coming to you with a team of people with 25 to 30 years of industry experience. The fact that I pulled together just phenomenal team to work on something that I believe in. They're putting their careers on the line. They're, they're putting their efforts behind this idea um, should be more telling than, you know, me being aggressive and pounding the table and uh, insisting that I'm 100% right. I think that's, that's a, a perception of the industry that I think we need to change and, and fix. And, um, you know, mentorship has, has a lot to do with uh, encouraging uh, differences of opinion, encouraging uh, you know, you to stick with what you believe in, and uh, I'm a huge proponent of it. I've been at the receiving end of, of some amazing advice from mentors. I, I continue to actively seek them out and, and uh, have been able to, very fortunate to be able to pay it forward. I've uh, had some incredibly bright young women, um, extremely accomplished, very poised, very polished, um, you know, come to me for advice, and I, and I do uh, help them out where I can, and you know, I find that a lot of them just need a little shot of confidence in the arm, and, and I'm happy to do that for That's them. Great. I think uh, I, I, it's important that we have... Uh, I think this is a sentiment I've heard from many 
women entrepreneurs, although also also men. I mean, that role of mentorship is essential, I think, in many people's career. And um, I'll have to suck you into my C sweetener uh, initiative, Ginny. Um, we, you know, I, I, but I, I so agree with you on the the phenotype issue of CEOs. And you know, it was funny. I woke up this morning and we were preparing to come, you know, record our shows and realized not by uh, purpose, but by accident, we have four strong women entrepreneurs on the show today, and it's a, it's a pretty exciting to see that we're starting to see more and more people uh, rise beyond the the typical to the to the successful. Yeah, I think that's fantastic, and uh, I, I look forward to hearing more about the Sea Sweeteners uh, uh, initiative that you've got going on. They certainly threw a great party at JPM. I like that a lot, Lisa. <laughs> yes, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, well, thank you so much for taking the time. We feel really uh, you're unbelievably busy, and so we're so happy that you were able to make a few minutes to uh, talk to us and share your experiences uh, with our listeners. My, my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you both. It was great talking to Ginny Despondi today from New Medi. She's such a terrific leader, and it's so refreshing to, to hear her point of view. I think it's really interesting. I think what's also interesting is, you know, to look at companies like New Medi, like other companies that are trying to say, okay, you know, I, I think as an investor, I get to say that now, <laughs> uh, you know, how do you distinguish among who, how do you pick, you know, sort of how do you pick the winners, which technology and, you know, first of all, figuring out who is going to win or, or who, you know, you know, it could be more than one, obviously. Is it going to be the technology? Is it going to be access to data? Is it going to be dumb luck? You know, I don't really know. Um, but at some level, I think being able to bet on the compounds that are produced, um, you know, that makes almost more sense to have that be the, you know, the, the, the playing field than trying to guess whether it's going to be technology A, B, or C. Yeah, I think it's so, I, I think it is so complicated because I think there's no way to know until you know. And there's this presumption, I think, that because there's massive amounts of data, there'll be faster, cheaper identification of, of targets. But all that data came from what came before it which doesn't always work, you know, and I think there's going to, I personally think there'll be a higher bar for these companies because, you know, I think the people that buy them, you know, the far old, old school pharma folks will be like, see, I told you it, it should be done the way it was always done. Well, except there's such a need for, I mean, companies, farmers in general, so I've heard have a desperate need for new products and they, they need to do, they need both more products. Um, they really have to have high impact yeah, sure. products. Um, and, um, there's um they have to be you know I'd, it'd be urgently important for them to be designed uh, to, you know, to come to market a cheaper and I think there's people are really interested in something that could help achieve that the idea as some have suggested not not Ginny in particular uh, that these new technologies are going to sort of you're going to be able to replace empirical drug discovery within silico work I, I think that's a little bit aspirational, very aspirational. Um, but hopefully, right after doctors are replaced, scientists will be replaced well, by you know, machines, right? Exactly. No, that's <laughs> going to happen. But I do think that it can really start to make a difference. And you know, just like for the organ transplantation, everyone's yeah. skeptical until start. All of a sudden, they're not. So uh, you know, very you know, in general, long term optimistic. I don't know what you'd bet on in a very, yeah. very well, short there, term. David, as an investor, is the crux of the matter. There you go. Can you make the return in the timeline you need to make it, or is it too far out? All righty. So, <laughs> so I guess I've just been venture-splained. So, 
<laughs> That's always interesting. Um, anyway, please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And Lisa on VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Keep it real, folks. Truth. Truth.